morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Wednesday, June the 1st, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. Rwanda says that it will retaliate if it suffers more attacks from neighboring Democratic Republic of Congo. So there, are, there is no presence of Rwanda soldiers in DRC, and uh, from there, there could not be any collaboration with any other force present in the Eastern DRC if there is no presence of Rwandan soldiers. That is Rwandan Foreign Minister Vincent Biruta. And in Sudan, the military authorities have freed several dozen political detainees after lifting the state of emergency. But is that enough to restore a sense of trust among the population? There is absence of the rule of law. Security operators are allowed to chase people and to arrest arbitrarily any person they might like, and they are not to any accountability or justice. That is Sudan human rights lawyer Mahmoud Osman. And a Jewish pilgrimage has returned to an island on the coast of Tunisia. We'll have those stories and more coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, the Rwandan government has denied allegations from the Democratic Republic of Congo that it supports the M23 rebel group. Rwanda's Foreign Affairs Minister made the statement as tensions continue to rise between the two countries. Eugene Uimana has more on this story. Speaking at a news conference in Rwanda's capital, Jigali, the Rwandan Foreign Affairs Minister, Vince Abiruta, said Rwanda has no soldiers in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So there, are, there is no presence of Rwandan soldiers in DRC, and uh, from there, there could not be any collaboration with any other force present in uh, Eastern DRC if there is no presence of Rwandan soldiers. Rwanda has called on the DRC to release two soldiers, Jigali says, were abducted by the DRC. Biruta denies allegations that those soldiers had infiltrated the DRC. We cannot attack a country and confront a national army with just two junior soldiers. Over the past several weeks, the Eastern DRC has seen a number of deadly attacks by the M23 militant group. The group says it is fighting to protect members of the Tutsi ethnic group living along the border between the DRC and Rwanda. The DRC has accused Rwanda of backing the M23, one of dozens of militias fighting in the eastern provinces. The Rwandan government says President Pokagame spoke with the chair of the African Union, Senegal's President Maxal, who is trying to bring DRC and Rwanda into negotiations to bring peace. As of now, tensions have caused the Democratic Republic of Congo to suspend all flights from Chigali. Ajen Uimana for VUE News, Chigali, Rwanda. The head of the African Union is calling on Rwanda and the Democratic Republic of Congo to lower tensions. The DRC accuses Rwanda of supporting the rebel group M23, which continues to battle the Congolese army in eastern Congo. As Mohamed Yusuf reports from Nairobi, analysts are doubtful the tensions or the situation in eastern Congo will soon improve. Calm has returned in some parts of the eastern DRC, which saw heavy fighting last week between the Congolese army and the rebel group M23. Jean Mobat Senga is Amnesty International's DRC researcher. He tells VOA there is a lull in the fighting. So when it comes to M23, there is some um, 
calm now over the last uh, few days. There have been no clashes reported. Uh, and in some parts, civilians uh, who had fled have started to, to return. Um, but that doesn't mean that uh, the conflict is over. Uh, civilians are still uh, being killed uh, by other armed groups. So it's not only the M23, which, uh, which is the problem. There are also other groups who are, have been killing people and are continuing to kill civilians uh, with impunity. Reports say the Congolese army, with the help of the UN peacekeeping force, MONUSCO, recently repelled a rebel advance on the city of Goma. The reports say M23 fighters have now returned to their hideouts near the border with Uganda. But residents of North Kivu and Ituri remain fearful of M23 and other armed groups in the region, which have competed for years for control of the area's rich mines. Some of the groups have ties to Rwanda, Uganda or Burundi. The DRC government accuses Rwanda of supporting M23 in an effort to destabilize the country. In a statement Monday, Rwandan Foreign Minister Vicente Biruta encouraged its neighbor to de-escalate its rhetoric. He said collaboration could restore security and bring lasting stability to the region. The minister also said the rebel group M23 was Congo's internal problem and should be resolved among Congolese themselves. On his Twitter account, African Union chairperson Senegalese President Makassal said he is concerned about the tension between the DRC and Rwanda. Sal said he spoke to DRC President Felix Tshisekedi and Rwandan President Paul Kagame in a quest to find a peaceful resolution to the crisis. Researcher and political analyst Ntanyoma Rikumbuzi says the tension between the countries and the unrest in the DRC are likely to continue. I don't see in the near future um, any escalation uh, involving directly both countries, Rwanda and DRC, because both countries have an interest to dialogue and settle uh, many of these issues uh, uh, in a pacific way, in a, a through the dialogue. Uh, but would this uh, be enough if Rwanda and DRC agree to solve their tension in a pacific way? Would this lead to the stability of the eastern DRC? I'm not sure. M23 insists it is fighting ethnic Hutu groups to protect the minority Tutsi living along the border between Congo and Rwanda. But Human Rights Watch DRC senior researcher Thomas Fessy notes M23 was expelled from peace talks between Congo and various armed groups that took place in Kenya at the end of April. All of this has created a context of, of tension which is sparking fears of, of new military confrontation on Congolese territory. And civilians are always the ones to pay the biggest price. In a few days of heavy fighting near Goma, over 70,000 people were displaced, according to humanitarian uh, organizations. Many of them will now need assistance. Congo is home to some 5.6 million internally displaced people, more than any other country in Africa. Mohamed Yusuf for VA News, Nairobi. Uganda's Minister of Defense and Veteran Affairs, Vincent Sempija Bamulangachi, tells me that even though his country is not taking sides in the conflict, there are mechanisms within the East African community, of which the DRC recently joined, 
to resolve such disagreements and he hopes that both countries will use the mechanisms to find a solution to their problems without resorting to armed conflict. As the principal, we don't wish, Uganda doesn't wish any of our members in the East African community uh, to have a quarrel within the members. We don't want any of us to have a quarrel with a fellow member of the East African community. So we really wish that uh, if there is any conflict that has arisen, it will be sorted out amicably without going into serious conflict. And are there any mechanisms in, uh, in the East African community to resolve any of these type of misunderstandings? Of course, of course. Of course, there are, there are several mechanisms. I think the members will find a way of getting the, the brothers to uh, sit on around the table. That was Uganda's Minister of Defense and Veteran Affairs, Vincent Sempija Bamulangachi. I reached him in Kampala, Uganda. Debrek Africa continues in Sudan. The military authorities have freed several dozen political detainees a day after the country's military ruler announced the lifting of the state of emergency imposed after an October coup. The Emergency Lawyers Committee, an activist group, said that the released people included 24 activists connected to the anti-military protest movement in Port Sudan and another 39 in or near the capital, Khartoum. Sudan's military ruler, General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, announced on Sunday the lifting of the state of emergency imposed after the coup, saying the step was meant to encourage dialogue in the country. However, many activists in Sudan are skeptical that the move will create any tangible reforms in how the military deals with demands for a transition to civilian rule. Mr. Mahmoud Osman Saleh is a human rights lawyer from Sudan's Darfur region. He tells me that it is unlikely the military willingly lifted the state of emergency, telling me from Khartoum that the military must have felt the pressure from the streets as thousands of Sudanese continued to protest, demanding for changes in their political system. This is a, a direct uh, reaction of the pressure from the street. That is the people who are taking streets, demanding freedoms and demanding the rights of uh, peaceful gatherings and demonstrations. Then this is being uh, manipulated by the fact that the, war or the, 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 the government now is seeking for a kind of reconciliation based on plans that will allow partnership from the, the political, some political parties to legitimize their military junta's rule of the country. This is the objective. For you as a human rights defender and a lawyer, how has life been for you during this uh, state of emergency? And how do you expect things are going to change now that it has been lifted? For me as a human rights defender, we have the experience of 30 years uh, uh, law of emergency that have never been lifted from Darfur. I am from Darfur. Uh, this has been there in Darfur since the coup of status of June 19. 89 until the revolution in, in 2019. So this uh, law of emergency was the base of 
all the violations that occurred in the country, especially in Darfur, where uh, security operators, the military, uh, were uh, involved and implicated in the, in the, in the destruction of the whole region of Darfur, burning and destroying more than 15,000 villages, uh, forcibly uh, removing people from their areas. The law of emergency was behind all arbitrary detention that occurred in the whole country, but especially in Darfur, where human rights defenders have been targeted all the way for 30 years. And some of them, like myself, we experienced also detention in prisons without any obvious charge. But the only reason was that we were voicing out on behalf of the victims. How optimistic are you that this move to lift the state of emergency will lead to any tangible progress towards restoration of uh, civilian rule in Sudan? It, is, it, will never, it will never make any change because still the security apparatus is enjoying full impunity. There is no accountability. There is absence of the rule of law. Security apparatus are allowed to chase people and to arrest arbitrarily any person they might like, and they are not subjected to any accountability or justice. This is why the lifting of the law of emergency will never make any difference. That was Mr. Mahmoud Osman Saleh, a human rights lawyer from Sudan's Darfur region. I reached him in Khartoum. And two days after Sudanese military leader General Abdel Fattah al-Burhani lifted the state of emergency on Sudan and released political detainees, street protests have continued. Anti-coup activists are still demanding a civilian-run government as they have since the October 2021 military coup. So what is the way forward? And are most civilians and the international community open to negotiations? Sudanese political analyst Jihad Mashmoun tells VOS Caravan Dam that there have been signs of compromise from all sides. There does seem encouraging in creating an environment for dialogue between both sides, the military and the civilian opposition. In the same instance, I'm inclined to say that it's too early to determine the intention of the military component and how the civilian opposition will interact with it. Does it open the door to negotiations with the international community about the way forward? Or is it impossible to envision you know, a military-run government being sustainable for any lengthy period of time, the way things are? Now, the international community has always been focusing since uh, the military coup of uh, October 25th of October 2021. The international community has always been focusing on a civil-military partnership. Every time you say, we would like a civilian-led democracy, that means that the military is going to be involved in it. Now, here I have to emphasize that the civilian, uh, the, uh, the people in the streets, especially the resistance committee, they've been against uh, any partnership with the military. So what happened, in essence, within this long period, uh, protest that happened, is that the UN and the African Union you got formed a triathlon uh, between three different organizations to lead the dialogue process. They are currently in direct negotiations between the civilians and the opposition.
at the same instance, the people are still protesting at the streets and they're being led by the resistance committee. These are the real uh, mobilizers of the street at the moment. The international community, if it really wants to help Sudan, it can actually help Sudan by imposing uh, a warning to the military to improve the situation further. And by warning, I mean specifically mention targeted sanctions against the military component or those who are obstructing the dialogue process. Both sides have to compromise the military and the civilian opposition. Right. And when you talk about that, how do you envision that compromise being played out? The civilians need to understand that this dialogue is a way of trying to understand what uh, the military wants to achieve. Does it want to stay in power? Is a Lieutenant General Burhan Hamedi they're avoiding the inquiry to what happened to the ending of the protest of 2019? Or are they protecting the former regime or certain groups within the former regime? That's what the civilians need to focus on. And the military on their side, they can improve the environment that is happening in Sudan, such as allowing the people to continue to protest Provided, of course, the process to ensure that the security of the civil people protesting. And by ensuring security, I mean that ensuring that no one is harmed. That was researcher and political analyst Jihad Mashmoon, who is also a research fellow at the Institute of Arabic and Islamic Studies in Exeter, England. He was speaking to my colleague, Carol Van Dam. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani. Somalia's envoy for humanitarian affairs says close to half the country's population have been affected by record drought with parts of the country facing the risk of famine. For VOA, Mohamed Sheknu reports from the Somali capital, Mogadishu. At a news conference in Mogadishu, Somalia's special envoy for humanitarian issues on Monday said more than 6 million Somalis were affected by the record drought. Abdirahman Abdishukur Rasame said the number of people suffering was quickly approaching half of Somalia's population. Warsame said the drought has hit 72 of Somalia's 84 districts and that six of them were already facing famine-like conditions with extreme food insecurity. He says our people are starting to die now. Deaths have begun. Famine is looming in some areas and drought is turning into famine. Warsame says the Somali people at home and abroad should help us in taking on some of the responsibility. The special envoy did not give any figures on how many Somalis have died from hunger, but appealed for aid to reach those in need. Warsame said the current drought, the worst in 40 years, had displaced nearly 700,000 Somalis from the countryside and forced them to seek help in nearby cities. He said the UN and aid agencies requested $1.4 billion for drought relief, but so far received only $58 million. Warsame said the international aid was more focused on the COVID pandemic, Russia's war on Ukraine, and crisis in Afghanistan, Syria, and Yemen. The humanitarian envoy also said not much attention is given to humanitarian needs because of Somalia's focus on politics last year and a half of delayed elections. International aid agencies warned Monday that threat of starvation was worsening in Somalia and neighboring countries across Ethiopia and Kenya. The Horn of Africa region is facing a record fifth rainy season without adequate rain, according to 
meteorological experts and humanitarian groups, which include UN agencies. Mohamed Shaknoor for VOA News, Mogadishu, Somalia. And let's go to North Africa in Tunisia, where a Jewish pilgrimage has returned to an island on the coast of Tunisia. Thousands of participants from different nationalities this month visited the El Griba Synagogue on Jabba, an island off the southeastern coast. Reporter Imen Bliwa has details from Tunis. Perez Haddad is a local citizen from Jirba and also the coordinator of the organizing committee of the island's Jewish community. Perez lives in Paris, France, and came to help with the pilgrimage to Griba Synagogue. The event is funded both by the Jewish community in Jirba and the Ministry of Tourism. It brings business revenue to Tunisia, especially at the beginning of this summer's tourist season. He says he worked on the event all year and helped organize and prepare everything. He says it was not spontaneous and it takes really hard work for it to succeed. After two years of interruption from COVID, up to 5,000 visitors came this year and the event planners hover the same next year. He says the pilgrimage received a lot of publicity as far away as Panama, Brazil and Spain. From where tourists came to sing and dance, he says, when Griba celebrations go well, there is bound to be a successful tourist season. The pilgrimage has become a regular event in Tunisia, as thousands of Jewish visitors came to celebrate their religious, rituals and spirituals, yet ancient place. Benjamin Frenish is a visitor originally from Jirba, but who lives abroad. Bonjour, euh, moi je suis né en Tunisie. Depuis que j'étais petit, euh, je suis entré. Like the Harak Bira neighborhood schools and graveyards where their Jewish relatives are buried. He says they stay for one or two weeks. It's very nostalgic visit for them. The southeastern island of Jirba receives thousands of Jewish people from all over the world like Bin. For their annual visit to the ancient Elgriba synagogue is the oldest one in Africa, built in 586 BC by Jewish Ho had left Jerusalem after Rome destroyed the first temple. Tunisia was the home to over 100,000 Jews before independence from France in 1956. After the closure of many synagogues and the Jewish quarters afterward, the population shrunk to only a few thousand estimated to be living there today. However, for this event, around 5,000 visitors from all over the world came to the eight-day celebration and attended several ceremonies and religious rituals. Many public and government figures blessed the event, including the Minister of Tourism, the Prime Minister, and several foreign ambassadors. The atmosphere was animated by music and bands from around the world. Elin Bitan is a Jewish musician and singer from Paris. France, 
Bitan, who is in his 40s, lived in Jerba till he was 26 years old. Since he knows the place by heart and sings Tunisian Arabic and Jewish songs, he says there was plenty of security with things carefully controlled at the hotel, even maybe a bit too much, but overall it was a good event with many visitors. The pilgrimage was heavily covered by security forces to ensure order and safety for all visitors and organizers. Observers say it was a beautiful symbol of coexistence, with Muslims, Christians and Jews at the same place celebrating an event that has been going on and on in Tunisia for years. For Daybreak Africa, I am Iman Bliwa in Tunis, Tunisia. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vogel.